the things that you like and the things that you do and the choices that you make are actually being fueled by your unconscious emotional constitution. The closer we get to actually understanding that unconscious persona, now we're talking about a truly 360 robust understanding of that person. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit MMA Global. And that voice you heard at the top is Esther Mariah Tejeda. She is the CMO of Anywhere Real Estate, which owns Century 21, Coldwell Banker, Sotheby's Real Estate, and more. Esther Mariah, or EM, previously worked at Ogilvy, PepsiCo, Univision, Intercom, and more. She joined Anywhere in 2022, just before the housing industry underwent some dramatic changes that we're going to talk about. Today in Building Better CMOs, Esther Mariah and I are going to talk about the irreplaceable human element in real estate, why marketers need to think of themselves as business leaders, and very interesting how businesses can use neuroscience-based methods to understand the emographics of their customers. This podcast is all about the challenges that marketers face and unlocking the true power that marketing can have. Esther Mariah Tejeda, from Anywhere Real Estate is going to tell us about how she did that right after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Esther Mariah Tejeda, welcome to Building Better CMOs. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah. So Esther, just so everybody knows here, you're CMO of Anywhere Real Estate. And I'm going to guess very few of our listeners, unless they're inside real estate, would actually even know the company. So it's a collection of well-known brands. We want to share those brands with everybody so they know. Absolutely. So Anywhere is the parent company of some of the most well-known brands in real estate, including Sotheby's International Realty, Coldwell Banker, Century 21, ERA, Better Homes and Gardens, and Corcoran. We're also in the corporate relocation business. So if you've ever been moved by your company and you've moved through Cardis, that's an Anywhere brand. And we're also in title insurance and in mortgage. So it is the leading residential real estate company in the USA. Crazy big, thousands and thousands of employees, right? Oh yeah, huge. And some of the most beloved consumer real estate brands in the country and arguably around the globe. So a very exciting time to be in this role and in this industry. Uh, <laughs> well, is that what we call this? Exciting, huh, Esther Marie? I'm not sure if that, is that the word I would have? Yeah, I don't know. What is a state of real estate? What's happening right now? Everything's kind of in a state of flux. It's been quite a ride as everything. Residential real estate is cyclical. There was quite a 
positive reaction happening after the pandemic for the business and people wanting to move, people thinking differently about their housing situations, people rethinking city living and wanting to move out to the suburbs, things like that, that actually ended up having a really great benefit to the business in combination with really, really low interest rates. And then things really did change towards the end of 2022 when we saw significant rises in interest rates, which changed the dynamics for most American buyers and sellers, coupled with some real challenges in inventory. You know, America has a huge housing inventory issue. We have more people than we have houses across the country in, in all markets. That That is the case. And so high interest rates and low inventory lead to a really peculiar set of circumstances that have dramatically impacted transaction volume and just what is comfortable for most Americans to consider, especially if you're sitting in a home with a 3% interest rate, you have to really think long and hard about giving that up to move somewhere else with an interest rate that's twice or even more than twice as high. So there's a lot a lot of opportunity, I think, for change and disruption and transformation and thinking about this industry differently and thinking about the customer experience differently and improving the customer experience all around. And I like to say that when there's challenges in the market, that is what gives rise to some of the best and most creative strategic thinking. I've seen that over and over again in a lot of other roles. And so we're tackling some pretty significant transformation and big, huge, powerful, inspiring goals at Anywhere right now. And so that's why I say it's an exciting and thrilling time to be at the company. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, you've got to appreciate growth opportunities, as somebody said to me once, and I guess that's what this is. And it is kind of a crazy one right now. I mean, you got private equity in the business, which is really changing the landscape. You see a lot in the news about that. I don't think that has anything to do with you all, obviously. You do have the higher interest rates. I mean, I I have two mortgages under 3%. You're right. I am never giving (laughs) them up for as long as I live. I mean, who would do that? That would just be insane. You know, real estate's a funny business. My wife said, you know, it's a contractor business. Most brokers or sales agents are independent contractors. Managing that can be have its own challenges. I mean, it's a pretty darn complex business. It is. And so we're a franchisee. Mm-hmm. We franchise a lot of our brands. Agents are, to your point, independent contractors. What that means, especially from a marketing perspective, is that the value of our brands and the value of our brand equity and awareness and the trust associated with our brands is our biggest asset, second to our people and our teams. So it makes the function of marketing actually much more important and sort of front and center than it would be perhaps in other industries and organizations because so much of the value that we're bringing in the B2B sense is the power of the brand and what does it mean for driving business? Right. And that brand is dictated in part by a customer experience. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I know a lot of pretty well-to-do real estate people and they're relatively independent minded. (laughs) There's a sense of like, they're not going to work for the company kind of thing. I don't know. There's a funny orientation to that a little bit, but that's got to make it really tough then to kind of extend it all the way down to what is arguably a consumer's biggest purchase they're ever going to make in their lives. For most people, absolutely true. It is the biggest purchase that they will make in their life and the biggest investment decision they'll have to make. And I think what we see in the data is that the agents and the brokers that do the best in this business are the ones that understand the importance of a positive 
customer experience. And we spend a lot of time as the marketing engine for the enterprise thinking about things like customer trust and thinking about things like, again, positivity in the experience and how do we make the transaction process more simple for buyers and sellers alike. In fact, that is the core of the Anywhere transformation strategy. It's something that we're thinking about all the way from the CEO down to every last person that's on the ground, boots on the ground in the company. We're in the business of thinking about how this experience can be improved through smart technology, good data, really great customer experience, et cetera. So lots going on and certainly no shortage of things to tackle and great ideas to be had. Well, in some regards too, you know, Esmeralda, that might even be kind of a good place to sort of jump off into sort of the thrust of this show. I haven't been around the business as long other than being a consumer, but with the digitalization, the fact you can see all homes online, you can look up all information. I mean, everything's really starting to change. It's also too, I think, all due respects to at least the people I know, it's not been a very, what I consider technologically oriented industry. It really was the classic people business, right? I mean, it really has been, it really was a one-to-one relationship between that buyer, seller and their real estate agent. And it still is a people business. I think that's something we say a lot and we're very proud of. I think at the end of the day, what makes a successful transaction versus an unsuccessful transaction is the experience that you have with your agent and your broker and how well-equipped, how knowledgeable, how trustworthy you believe that person to be in their role to steward you through what is a really, really complicated, cumbersome process. And the role of technology in that, which is exactly what we're investigating and navigating at the moment is there is a tremendous opportunity for smart technology, not to replace the human and people side of all of this, but to elevate it and to enhance it by taking away some of the operational friction in the process and some of the sort of project management stress in the process so that the buyer, the seller, and the agent can focus more on that human relationship and getting the client to the finish line more successfully. I think good real estate agents are at sometimes almost armchair psychologists at some level. Absolutely. And we hear that from our consumers all the time where they describe their relationship to their agent as a trusted advisor, as a counselor of sorts. That's a relationship that we have to take very seriously and remains at the center of the business. We are living in the most distrusting period of time, certainly in all of our lifetime. Consumers, you know, if you look at all of the data, all of the research that is out there right now, consumers are more distrusting today than they've ever been. They don't trust each other. They don't trust the government. They don't trust businesses. They don't trust brands. We don't trust news. We don't trust news. We don't trust science. Everything is up for debate. And the data also shows us that there's very little optimism. So folks are less optimistic about the next five years than we've ever seen before. And that's in WARC data. That's in the Edelman Trust Barometer. That's a thing that is surfacing in research all over the place. And so it tracks what you're describing, totally tracks. People will flock to brands, businesses, whether it's real estate or something else 
that they believe are aligned with their values and their principles and that they believe are going to operate in their best interest. And so we as marketers are in the business almost squarely right now of understanding that nuance in our customer base and delivering on that trust proposition because that is the only way to effectively run a business in today's day and age. Okay. Well, this is a great jumping off point. So let's get into building better CMOs. Okay. So the question I always ask, what do you think marketers don't fully understand or appreciate that would create for a better marketing dynamic? What is that? What do you see as you look out and listen, you've been in marketing, I don't know, a number of years, a couple of decades, at least big New York agencies. I noticed Pepsi was in there. I saw on the list. So you've been dare I say, classically trained. But what do you think? And you've seen a lot of different marks from different places. In fact, you've been on the media side too. Univision, did I see Univision at one point? I was at Univision. I was at Entercom, which Intercom. is now Odyssey. Uh-huh. Yep, Odyssey, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I've been around the block. No spring chicken over here. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going that wasn't where I was going. However, uh, <laughs> as you look out over the broad swatch of the marks you work with, what you've seen in your experience, what do you think we don't fully appreciate or get? I think part of the biggest issue with our discipline is that a lot of marketers describe themselves as marketers and think of themselves as marketers and only marketers. Hmm. And so the issue with that is that there is a disconnect between the function and the subject matter expertise of marketing and the overall business strategy. There are so many times where I see that misalignment between heads of marketing, marketing teams, and the CFO and the CEO, simply because people are speaking totally different languages. And the marketing team is knee deep or head down in the business of marketing and not really understanding really what is this business trying to accomplish? What are the revenue goals? How does this business operate? How does it make money? How can I support the bottom line? How can I be part of stewarding the business forward? And I think understanding and accepting and embracing that you are first and foremost a business leader and before you are a functional marketing expert, that is the leap that a lot of marketers struggle to make. And so I always bristle a little bit when I hear senior marketing people say, well, I'm just a marketer or I'm a marketer. I kind of want to reach out and say, no, you're, you're actually a business leader that is a marketing expert, not the other way around. And I think if we embrace that relationship to our organizations and to the rest of the C-suite and frankly, to the bottom line, we will have much more agency as a discipline and a much more important role and the rightful role and seat at the table to start being part of larger decision-making business strategy, not just execution and outreach and engagement and all of the things that marketing is historically known for, because this is a function that can and should be doing much more expansive work in today's landscape. Okay. I'm going to parse this in two different ways with you then I think would be interesting here. What does it mean to be a business leader? What do you mean to be connected to the rest of the C-suite and the objections of the organization, how you kind of started there? And then I think I'm going to ask you too, what do you think is required to be a really good marketer? Let's take it back down a level, but I'm going to go back to that higher level for a moment. What is that? I think marketing really needs to understand what a business is thinking to do and wants to be and what they want to accomplish in the five and 10 year outlook. 
So the language of CFOs is very different from the language of CMOs, right? We have to learn to speak that financial language. We have to understand the books, how the revenue is generated. We have to understand quarterly earnings and the impact of those reports on the success, health, or otherwise of a business. And I think the more that we integrate into those conversations around future strategy of a business, transformation strategy of a business, growth strategies of a business, diversification strategies of a business, et cetera, we can become an integral part of the strategy team as opposed to, I think, where a lot of marketing sits, which is an execution arm that is designed to help execute or implement strategies that are being set somewhere else. And so when I say get closer to the business, and when I say think of yourself as a business leader first, I mean, quite literally, your job is in a crew of people, a leadership team that is trying to drive a business in its entirety forward. What are you adding to that mission? And then what is the way that marketing as a functional area can support that mission and help hit those numbers and drive to that bottom line? And that is a jump that is very difficult for a lot of marketers to make. And we need to start having that conversation more widely in our discipline. I want to get some examples of that kind of thing, but I want to kind of call out too, is this is not the voice of an MBA. There was not a business degree. I looked at your undergrad. Your undergrad is not a business degree. You're not an economist. That's your, what got you to be so attuned to the business dynamics and how do you talk to the CFO? So I will say I have a little bit of a running start. I come from a very entrepreneurial family. Okay. And so I have always had a total business kind of outlook on any organization that I've ever been a part of. Okay. Okay. You learned it at the dinner table, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Right. Having that comprehensive view of what this organization is doing helps me to then ladder up my marketing strategies to support that. I did spend a lot of time working on financial comms. So I got very, very versed in the business of the CFO and their quarterly earnings and understanding all of that. It really started to become crystal clear how at the end of the day, everything that everyone is doing in the business comes down to the financial reporting out to the shareholders and to the stakeholders and to Wall Street. And so the closer that you are to driving that success, the more successful you will be in driving your function. And so that's advice I give to everybody. You sat on the investor calls or whatever. You were helping to work on communications for the company around that in your background. And you were like, oh, these people are talking. I'm in marketing, but I'm working for the CFO. I'm assuming it's some of what's going on there. And like, oh, that's their language. That's different than I'm hearing here from these other people in marketing. Interesting. Wow. What a unique experience. And thank God for that, because it really has been a full circle journey for me. I mean, at that time, right, marketing was still being talked about as arts and crafts, essentially. The creative team, design, advertising, collateral materials, et cetera but not really clear to the CFO or the CEO, how is this actually driving my numbers, which is the thing I need to report on every quarter to my stockholders or to my partners. And so what has happened over the years and in the decades is that organically marketing has gotten closer and closer to that, almost to a point where we are sometimes thought of as a sales enablement function, which is also a mistake. And so I think the trick is finding that 
smart middle ground where you are maintaining the integrity of creative and you are maintaining the voice of the customer and you are that conduit and that liaison to what is happening in culture and society and helping your organization be responsive to it, but doing it in a way that is commercially viable and that is commercially minded because that's ultimately what everyone is there to do. Can you give an example? You don't even have to name the company. Can you talk about sort of an awareness moment you had and, or how you figured out how to talk to CFO or how would you advise to talk to CFO? What's your advice to other marketers to understand what the CFO is having to deal with and the business that they're in and how to translate that? It's all about being able to measure oh. and being able to quantify your impact. Oh, man. So you mean the thing that we in marketing suck the most at? Yeah. And we can't afford to suck at it. That's the thing because it's ridiculous. More and more, this is what is being asked of marketing leaders. Like, show me the return on this investment. I mean, we're actually hearing organizations talk about marketing as an investment. We're hearing folks ask for ROI. A little bit. Especially like in organizations that are much more digitally forward or have digitally forward thinkers, they're talking about marketing in terms of ROI. And so you have to get to a place where you're really understanding what are the metrics that the company is measuring against, what are the numbers that they are driving to. And then when you are executing or building marketing strategies, you have to also do the work of understanding if I am successful at this, this is the economic KPI that this can return for the company. One of the things that I always bristle at is when we see marketing work that is totally couched in engagement numbers and engagement metrics. So engagement numbers and engagement metrics do not actually tell me how much money we made. Are we having the likes conversation? The most despised metric? Right. We're having the likes. Or click through. Oh my God. Click rates. You wouldn't know this. I wrote the industry's digital click guidelines globally and got adoption of that 2004. I've gone back to the organization now, manage that. I says, we should cancel the technical guideline of a click. It is misleading and bad for the business. They've not chosen to do that yet, but I think we should get rid of it. Stop it. Stop measuring it. It's only half of the story. It's like, okay, so what happened with that click? How did it actually drive all the way through to a dollar? It's worse than I've done the research. There was no relationship between clicks and business performance whatsoever. None, none. In fact, my very favorite study of all time is there's one out there where people took and they created white blank ads and standard IB sizes. That's why I did that work for. Standard IB sizes, white blank ads up there. You know what's funny? The click through of white blank ads was the same as ads with ads in them. That's insane. That's yeah, bad. we're idiots. It's it is. We need to get away from that. We need to start talking dollars and cents. We need to start talking total addressable market. We need to start talking about incremental volume, incremental transaction volume. Like what can we actually deliver? It's all about incrementality. You're a hundred percent correct. A hundred percent. Okay. How do you look at your success as a marketer? What do you think maybe you're doing differently than another marketer might be doing? I think would be interesting to understand. Like how do you translate your role in this collaboration that ultimately then gets to the business goals. Talk to me about marketing. So first and foremost, I'm hyper-focused on what is our economic contribution to the business. And so I frame everything in that context and I look to create strategies that deliver on economic goals, one. Two, the other kind of thing that I am championing very heavily right now is much deeper and much more robust segmentation of the customers. 
I like to call that total audience strategy. And it is thinking holistically about a business. Our business, for example, in real estate is very complex. As you mentioned earlier, we have agents as customers, we have brokers as customers, franchisees as customers, and then buyers and sellers. And they're all customers in a different way. It very much classically a B2B to C organization. Now, if I marry that with the insights that we were talking about earlier around consumer trust and the state of affairs in the world right now, and all of the research that we are seeing in the marketing industry around consumer behavior and expectations, the dissolution of trust as a core tenant of society, the decrease in optimism for future generations. And we just look at that data generation over generation, and we look at it through ethnic lenses, and we look at it through household income, and we look at it geographically. It's a pretty clear picture of fragmentation. Mm -hmm. And so what we are dealing with in today's market and today's reality is, I would say, the most fragmented, diverse, nuanced, and complex customer base that certainly I have ever seen in over 20 years in marketing. Wow. And so what that necessitates as a marketer and a business leader is a much more complex way to understand that customer base because that one size fits all approach of yesteryear today means one size fits none. Okay. Can I step in on that? Sure. Let's go back to your background because I know where you came from and Pepsi, phenomenal brand oriented company. And this is not about Pepsi. Let's just take that out of the mix. Are you kind of rejecting that as the underlying thesis of where marketing goes? that it's not just about creating that unique brand differentiation and bringing it to the marketplace? Because there's a lot of people who still believe in that. It is not. It is that and a lot more now. And I think customer and consumer expectations are higher than they've ever been. And I think that also there is a desire and not just a desire, a demand for personalized experiences that reflect the values and the belief and the wants and desires and to meet the specific needs of that customer. And so we have to get into what I'm calling precision marketing. And in order to have that level of precision and targeting and granularity in your strategy and in your execution, we have to have better, more robust data and insights. Because in even one brand, you can have so much fragmentation in your customer base that by just kind of understanding one segment, you're leaving a bunch of money on the table and you're also potentially eliminating an entire customer base from your brand and from your business. And so the hyper-targeting to create the hyper-trust, that's the relationship that we need to be building right now. And so what I am working on to get there is something I'm calling emographics. We have a name for it. Here, let's make sure everybody heard it. Emographics. You want to, is, should we spell it? It's just E-M-O graphics? It's a shorthand for emotional graphics. And it's oh. what I argue is the missing link to getting that robust 360 customer profile. And so when I first started this in this business a while ago, over two decades ago, it was all about demographics. That's how we segmented our customer. 
That's how we targeted and personalized. Dumbest thing in the world. Absolutely. Unbelievable. I mean, men 25, 54, women 18 to 49. Have you got to be shitting me? What is their comment about it? Stan, you could pick any random person at the same age group and stand them next to you. And I guarantee you, none of your needs, your desires, your state of life are the same. It doesn't matter. I agree with that a thousand percent. It's insane. Oh my God, crazy. And we would add ethnic layers to that. It doesn't work. So we moved on from demographics and then we added psychographics. Yeah, yeah. Which we thought was the cutting edge of understanding. Feels a little unproven validated. We'll see if I hear from the psychographic company of that, but that always left me a little funky. You could develop an interesting insight and maybe it showed up in messaging, but you sure as hell couldn't really target against it. So who cared? So we always, as an industry, say we are all about understanding why. I hear that all the time from just about every leader that's in this business. Mm -hmm. Why does your customer do this? Why, why, why? But psychographics don't tell me why. They tell me what. They tell me what they do. They tell me what they like. They tell me what they oh. you know, prefer, what their choices are. They don't tell me why. And certainly neither do demographics. And so emographics, in my opinion, is the answer to the why question. And it is premised on the psychological kind of known fact that the majority of human behavior, upwards of 95%, is actually emotionally driven by the unconscious so you may not even be aware of it, but the things that you like and the things that you do and the choices that you make are actually being fueled by your unconscious emotional constitution. And so I think that the closer we get to actually understanding that unconscious persona and we marry that data set with the demographics and the psychographics, now we're talking about a truly 360 robust understanding of that person. Now we can understand what makes that person tick. Now we can start building personalized, targeted, precise campaigns and strategies that truly, truly segment customers. Oh my God, I love and it. I want to be clear to your earlier point, this is about segmentation. This is not fluffy persona kind of characters. This is about understanding at a very core level, the emotions that drive our customer base, segmenting those people appropriately, mapping that to the data sets that we're getting through our variety of marketing channels, marrying that data with demo data and psycho data, and then creating customer profiles for lookalikes, for targeting, and all the things that we do digitally. And it's emographics. It's all neuroscience-based. I love it. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with Esther Maria Tejeda. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy, or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help Building Better CMOs, and that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Esther Mariah Tejeda, the CMO of Anywhere Real Estate. 
So listen, I trained as an economist. The basics of economists was based on sort of what a rational man would do. And I think it was like the last class I took in university when they said, oh, by the way, there's no such right. thing as rational man. <laughs> I'm like, WTF, what do you mean? It really upset my whole world. And then the more I get around in the world, I'm going, okay, I get it now. Like there is no such thing. Just think about that from an anecdotal perspective. <laughs> How many d- times do you see people making totally irrational decisions? Are we talk about my friends now? No, we're talking <laughs> well, about, we can I'm talk sorry, about we just my shift? friends. We can talk about me. How many times have I made decisions that are just not reasonable, but they make me feel good at the time. And so I'm going to go ahead and do it. We see that with aspirational customers all of the time. We see aspirational customers, especially in luxury. Especially in real estate, especially in real estate. Oh my God, it's got to be the most irrational thing. And the thing about it, why this is so fascinating in this role and introducing neuroscience and emographics in this particular setting. Mm, neuroscience. We're going to come back to that. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Why it's exciting. Go ahead. Well, it's because we have historically thought about things like financial services and housing real estate as truly rational industries, right? Where a customer is coming in and thinking with their brain and looking at their budget and making hard choices based on their reason. But we see time and time again, customers going into a house that's out of their price range, that's out of the zip code that they're looking for, that doesn't meet any of the criteria that they have listed, but they walk into the house and they imagine their kids playing in the backyard or they imagine Christmas dinner in this dining room. Totally. And it goes out the window and suddenly they're in love with the house and they start using words like, this was love at first sight. Yep. I love this house. I need this house. And suddenly the reason goes out the window and now they're driving completely on emotion. And so what is that? And that is the thing that we all, and whether you're in real estate, whether you're in auto, whether you're in CPG, it doesn't matter. That is the marketing gold. We need to understand that better. Well, listen, we said earlier, you know, that being a real estate agent is as much being a psychologist for somebody and stuff. You know, I love your other point too here. By the way, this is going to come up in our next sort of section of this episode here when I talk to you a little bit, as I mentioned. But you know what I have? I actually have a psychologist, PhD psychologist on retainer to me and the rest of the company. Senior execs mostly, but right? And the idea, it's a, it's a he, the idea is I use him to just check my thinking that I'm being as thoughtful, I'm trying for rational, although I know we've dismissed that, but it's to check my thinking. On what basis am I making this decision? Am I making that on the right basis for the decision I'm making? Am I gonna have the outcome? Because you're right, my mind tricks me and says, this is what I need, it's not really what I need. Or I misread the situation in some way because, I don't know, my dad was me, my mother was what, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter, I don't care where it all comes from, who cares, let's not get into that. But it's like, that's the idea, I need to process, or or I'm pissed off, I'm annoyed, or whatever emotional state I'm going on. In business, I do need to make better decisions than not, I mean, you know, obviously. So yes, that's why I have him around for that very same reason. I love that. I should take him for a house hunting, but I already said I'm not changing houses again. So bring the neuroscience side into the thing because we MMA's done a lot of work around neuroscience. I'd like to even do more. So tell me how that plays in when you're doing some of your, I guess, advanced work in the marketing insights analysis you're doing. Well, I think this is the frontier of customer insights. I think everyone should start thinking about email graphics. A lot of people agree with you on that. Yeah, and I think everyone should start thinking about email graphics and using neuroscience to understand customers and to do segmentation work. Can you give an example of the why? Where did you go? I thought it was this, but it turned out to be that. Do you have an example of where you captured that? And then how you got there too would be interesting. Like I said, we're doubling down on neuroscience. So this is all neuroscientific research. This is not focus groups 
and surveys, which in my opinion is post-rationalized opinions from customers. Rational consumer decisioning. Okay, I got it. I didn't know that. That's (laughs) correct. This is going before that moment of rationalization where you have thought something and then you convinced yourself that it was a rational thought. And so we use quite a few methodologies and I do work with neuroscience teams to help me conduct and scope this research. This is all, I think, very progressive and certainly cutting edge. And I'm excited to be on the frontier of this. I think it's the right direction for the industry and definitely the right direction for real estate being that it's such a emotionally driven business. So to give you an example of some of the types of insights that I have been able to pull, there are actually a variety of unconscious emotional personas when it comes to housing, okay. right? Okay. There are, for example, folks that are in the anxious category. And so housing for them is about finding stability and creating roots and feeling secure in something. And so their approach to home and housing and real estate has an anxious undertone to it. And that anxiety you will see coming out and how they approach the process, how deliberate they want to be about the project management. They're probably planners. They're probably over-organized. They probably have lists and checklists and things of that nature. And that all comes from having an anxious persona, an anxious, unconscious profile. Now, this is not a customer that's ever going to say, I feel anxious about housing. I feel like I need stability and roots. And they may not even be aware of it, frankly, but it's something we've uncovered through neuro. There's a different type of persona and there's a variety of this, but I'll give you two that are really different to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, who is all about achievement. And this is a person that wants to feel validated. And this is a person that wants to feel successful and they want to feel like they have won. And so for that person, housing is a notch on the belt, an accomplishment. It is something to be proud of. It is a mission that is part of a life plan. So they approach the whole housing process, the search for the agent, the search for the home as almost a a self-competition. Like, how can I outdo myself? I can do better. Can I do better? What's the biggest, best bang for my buck that I can possibly get? And it takes on a really competitive edge and it's less about the home and it's less about the security or the family or the warmth or the whatever. It is more about the pride. And so again, that's not a person that's going to come out and articulate that but it is a unconscious emotional driver that is going to affect the way they think and approach and process the whole transaction and the business of buying a house. And so here are two different people with two different unconscious emographic personas that would require a completely different customer experience in order to feel satisfied and to feel good about their experience. A whole different objective. By the way, you just described why I own a house in New York City, (laughs) because I'd walk the streets of New York City going, how do people buy whole houses here? That's so rare. How do you get one of those? And I think for me, it was just, I want to own a house in New York City someday. It was on my vision board, apparently. Right, right. (laughs) That's very funny. It would be totally that. uh, Roots, ah, whatever. Secure, I don't care, whatever. Yeah, that's very funny. I love it. So listen, that's actually really interesting. But I think part of the more complex dynamic is how do you then bring that to life? 
How would you then talk to people individually? Do we even have the MarTech stack that lets us do that now? Or are we just at the very beginning of trying to figure that out? Or I don't know. This is where we need to do the hard work of connecting. So just having the emographic segmentation is not going to be enough. Just having the demographic or psychographic segmentations are not going to be enough. Yeah. There's two different people getting the same kind of message. So we're creating confusion of maybe nothing else, right? I don't know. So we actually have to sub-segment those emographic personas, profiles on demographics, and we have to sub-segment them even further on psychographics. So we get to probably more personas, but they're more precise. Oh, okay, okay. And then when you have more personas that are much more precise then you can take those cohorts and create individual marketing strategies, inclusive of messaging, inclusive of creative, inclusive of really all of the touch points, even channels that you're activating against that work better for one comprehensive persona versus another. The other thing is this shouldn't just be fueling your marketing strategy. This should be fueling your customer experience, customer service strategy. It should also be fueling your product strategy, what products you should be building for whom and what the experience should be within the product. Totally. This is not about just marketing. This is really about knowing your customer and creating business strategy that is responsive to and reactive to the reality, the complexity, the diversity of a fragmented customer base. And that's what this is all about. And I think where we struggle, especially in times of economic challenge, and I know there's been a lot of layoffs. We see it all the time on LinkedIn just this week. I know there were some pretty significant layoffs at at a couple of big companies. Been a lot in the news. There's a lot in the news around this. And so I think in times of economic pressure, marketing tends to double down on the most generalized strategy that it can get away with. And what ends up happening is we waste a ton of money because like I said, I think I said it already, but one size fits all is one size fits none. Now you're just wasting money. It's smarter to spend less and be more precise than to spend more and try to spray and pray. And this is really what adding this additional layer of data around your customer can help you to do. It can help you to become more granular. You know what, Esther Maria, I got an idea for you here. This is actually really interesting. And I realize I'm pitching you something here in the process of the actual episode itself. (laughs) I think what you're on to is phenomenally interesting. And I hear you about sort of this cloud of the times. And there's a lot of markers I hear lately who are really moving to sort of the cultural dynamics of the environment at, at hand. They use it as a, often as an attention getting, sometimes to be sort of more sort of relevant at the moment. But even that's missing the point because what's happening with the economics is there is still a very big class of people who are in the higher echelons who are not feeling that same sense of anxiety that other people. Oh, absolutely. So you still should be talking achievement to those people, just if I take your quick personas, but this anxious roots thing maybe exists someplace else. And so you're right. We really are just missing the point. Okay, here's the thing. The MMA has been doing some work. We call it the Consortium for AI Personalization. Here's basically what happened. A guy named Rex Briggs was running the stats in the country on COVID vaccine adoption and the death counts. He was the guy, and he did with Brown University, where you went. Brown University, maybe Harvard, but CDC was involved. The ad council was involved. And he was the guy doing that guy named Rex Briggs. What he found is that in order to get vaccine adoption, you had to personalize the message. That having a broad, hey, you got to get vaccinated, it didn't work anymore. It was over. Those people have been taken off the mix. You couldn't get any more. 
And as a result of his research and the work that he was doing, the work that he did to personalize, he figured out that he did save 3,500 lives. Like this is serious shit. And we're now doing a series of studies right now. What we're doing is we're not using any first party data. We're doing it off a contextual signal. And that came from the work he did in vaccine. You know, it's, it's health stuff. You can't know people for health. It's very challenging. So his theory was, well, what I used to do contextual and that's how he saved the lives. And now we have found that using contextual information and AI, and I can tell you he's using it's techniques. I wouldn't have any idea what they are, but it's called one hot encoding and K modes clustering. And it's a way of targeting something that us marketing people never even heard of. And what he's doing there is personalize the message. We have seen performance of ads go up 3X, 195%. I believe that. Well, one of the studies, back to your personalization thing. One of the things he found is that generally, on average, the female voice, he was doing an audio too. He found female voice was better than male voice. However, this is really funny. The male voice worked better in mostly Southern states, Michigan and Utah. Patriarchal societies is what our guess is. We don't know for a fact, but we couldn't have written a thing and said, hey, go after men dominated, oriented populations. And that's what, you know, we didn't think of it. The male voice also worked better after 10 p.m. I suspect there was a sense of security and safety that it provided at some level. I'm guessing, I don't know exactly. But we found all these cohorts. You know what would be really interesting is to take your work and let the AI go find a cohort. Don't try to guess, because I don't think we could ever guess. Well, that's exactly the future of this, because this has to be unlocked through AI. AI is what's going to take all of this to the next level. And I still haven't figured out how that connection is going to work, but it's something I'm very much thinking We know how to do it. Let's you and I talk after this, because I think it'd be interesting to take your thesis and your learnings and take it into this environment and see what it means. Because you're right, it's the same problem we have. I did psychographics a lot of years ago. We used a new business presentation, never talked to the client afterwards about it because we couldn't execute it. It just was pointless. It just didn't make any sense. It was interesting for new business, but it didn't help us when I was in the agency business. Very interesting. So the second part of this is that I think there's a lack of understanding, appreciation, whatever you might want to call it, or just maybe just exposure, we'll say to what it means to both get to the C-suite and to stay there. And in some regards, maybe how the game's played differently. And I just think it would be good for other CMOs and those who have aspiration to be at a senior executive level to understand. By the way, you mentioned to me earlier, your family has psychology degrees in the in the family. So this sort of runs. So I think this is going to tie something. What was your been in your experience? Like, What advice would you give people trying to get to that next level or to be prepared for or why it's different? I love that question because I think one of the biggest disservices that we do to upcoming talent is to allow them to believe that just being excellent marketers is what's going to get them to the C-suite. I'm here to say that that's not the game. You're not playing the game. So I used to think that the more senior I got and the higher up the ranks I got, and I thought this early in my career, the more kind of independent that I could be. I would be able to make (laughs) unilateral decisions. I would just make my own choices. I wouldn't have to worry about what other people are thinking because I would be the quote unquote boss, right? Of things. And I laugh at that now when I think back to my 22 year old self in my cubicle, (laughs) like right out of college thinking, I just can't wait to be in the C-suite so no one can tell me what (laughs) to do. I love the independence of that. However, (laughs) what'd you find out? Well, come to find out the more senior that you get, And the closer to the C-suite that you get, and eventually in the C-suite, the more interdependent your work becomes. Because once you get into a C-suite role or in a senior, senior executive role, you are stewarding a business. So it is less about your functional expertise in your area. It is about your ability to collectively steward 
that business as the C-suite. And so you find yourself in an environment where there's a lot of decisions made by consensus. There is a need absolutely to get alignment and to socialize what you are doing, why you are doing it, how it works together or not with other leaders in the C-suite. And it is all about playing nicely together or not nicely, but playing together in a way that is symbiotic, choreographed, and makes sense in the sandbox, in the C-suite sandbox. So it is the farthest thing from making unilateral decisions and sort of being the boss of things that you could ever imagine. It requires so much team thinking, flexible thinking, people skills, soft skills, leading selflessly, and really primarily putting the best interests of the business and the people in the business at the center of all of the decisions, as opposed to your expertise in your subject area, whether that's marketing, whether that's legal, whether that's finance. And so that's a surprise, I think, to a lot of people who are coming up. And it's something I think we need to be much more transparent and vocal about to help more people get into the C-suite and stay in the C-suite for longer amounts of time. We've done a lot of work in marketing organizations with a bunch of team of professors. I think it's the most interesting work I'll get to do in my entire career. We have a saying, you are no longer managing a function, you are managing a coalition. That's right. That's exactly what it is. I'll give you the actual stats. On average, 38% of marketing capabilities don't sit under the office of the CMO anymore. 38%. It's crazy. It is. And you really do have to work with everybody. Let me ask you a funny question. This is really a touchy one. I'm not sure you even wanted to answer Uh-oh. it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you think we end up making better decisions or not as good a decision sometimes when we're making the mitigated committee decision? That's a tricky question. That's a tricky question. I think that largely depends on the caliber and quality of the C-suite. Okay, okay. Yeah, you're right. Is everybody there for the greater good to do the right thing or not? Because you get a lot of political bullshit. Yeah. It is. And I think that's why having the right people and the right culture in an organization is actually not fluff. Yeah. And it's actually super, super important to the success of the business because a healthy C-suite is going to make the right choices for a business. A toxic C-suite, questionable. I think the thing that I've learned to do and hopefully it learned to do well, but I say stand back and look at it. In fact, I just had an episode here about an hour before I jumped on this with you. I find sometimes that when things don't feel aligned, they're probably not. And I need to roll back and I need to roll back again. And if I can't get alignment there, I got to roll back again. And I think I've over the years now with my advanced experience sort of figured out how do I get to hear that we're misaligned. First off, I got to recognize it, not to go, what the hell are you thinking? It's not that. It's like roll back to a place and then find a place that we go, okay, do we agree here? Oh, okay. We agree here. Okay. We are aligned here in the objective. Okay. Let's go up a level. What about here? What about here? I run a trade association. It's all about getting masterful alignment of an industry from people, not from a common culture. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happens in every C-suite and every organization. I think that's a brilliant hack, if you will, of how to approach those relationships. What got you to understand that, by the way, so well? Was there a, a moment, an experience or something that happened that you went, oh, aha? I've been in a CMO role a couple of times now, and it is something that I have learned and continued to learn over and over again in every organization. And also every organization is a little bit different. 
So I have had the absolute benefit of having really great mentors and sponsors in my career that have helped me to navigate really complex cultures. And, you know, to your earlier point, I've been in media, I've been in CPG, I've worked on global, big global brands in music and entertainment. And these are known to be complicated cultures to navigate. Very complicated. Yeah, they are. So I have had the pleasure and the benefit of having really great mentorship and sponsorship throughout my career to help me to do that. And I also had the benefit of having really great role model at home through my mom, who was a CMO when I was growing up. So, Oh, you didn't mention that. That's so interesting. That's so funny. So I had a little bit of, again, some training and understanding there. And even still, even still, even having all of that, it's a hard lesson to learn because you can learn it theoretically, but until you're there and you really see how it all works, and this is where having access to boards and getting on nonprofit boards and understanding all of that Holy. really helps you to get that picture and to understand that. But for me, as a person who in my constitution, and I recognize this about myself, I like to be in control. I like to call the shots. It is my instinctual disposition to move fast, make decisions, and kind of be on the ball. Having to learn to take a step back and have a collaborative team approach to things was a learned effort. And it's a learned effort that I make every single day that it allows me to be able to grow my career and be in these roles and Again, think holistically about the business, not just about my function, my goals, my team, marketing, but the business and what is it that we're trying to do in our industry, for the company, for the employees, and for the industries that we're in. I work with, uh, obviously, a lot of C-suite executives of very big companies, and you get to figure out they got there for a reason. Okay. Hard to stay there, but they got there for a reason. (laughs) I'll tell you what I notice about you that's so interesting. And I usually don't comment like this, but you really have such an incredible sense of self-reflection that I think is what's serving you really well. And listen, you're lucky to have the background because it, I think sometimes we think we can just take anybody from any background and put them in a more senior level. It's much more complicated than that. You really have to learn your way into those things. I, I think you can create a lot of disruption, hardship, and difficulty And I don't know how you get around that. sounds like you did that through mentors and people. Well, and listen, having great mentors is one thing you would have done, but also people would have seen something in you that they wanted to support too, which is kind of goes unknown. I'm sure that was a big part of your background here. So very interesting. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I do self-reflect a lot. I like to think of myself as a people first leader. And so I think a lot about the culture I'm building and I think a lot about the experience that I'm giving to people that are on my team or who are part of my organization. I do believe that having a positive culture, it's really underrated. And a lot of us think it's fluff, but it is the difference between having a successful business and not. And because we work so much and we work so hard and many of us work so many hours, it's actually bad for your health and for your life if you're unable to create that balance and that fluidity and like learn these lessons and have that objective perspective of yourself and really be able to look and criticize yourself in positive ways and be in a constantly learning, constantly evolving 
mode. There really is no line right now in my life between my professional and my personal. Like it, it all merges because there's just so many hours in the day. I find myself doing everything at the same time. Creating that balance is super important. And I think it's also part of what I bring to the leadership table and to, again, the relationship building and the collaboration and the team building and the alignment, which is what makes success or breaks success. Oh my God, I could go, I, I see we're completely out of time here and I wish I could go on and on with that. I think you're right. I think what people don't appreciate is that it's like they say about families and psychology, right? It's about the system. Mm-hmm. It's about the system and the relationships. And for myself, it's about the balance. I think I've spent an entire life trying to figure out what my combination of whatever it is that makes me better, stronger, faster, able to fulfill on whatever goal I have in my life, whatever, that's a secondary sort of issue at some level. But the ability to perfect, to live against what that aspiration is, it's much trickier than people understand. And I think, by the way, I think it takes a shitload of help. Just FYI to those out there. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. This is really the most interesting, by the way, one of the most interesting closes here, Eric was going to say something later. I know about that. But, uh, <laughs> really interesting. I, I really wish we could go. Maybe we'll have you back just to talk about the second part of building better CMOs. So listen, we can't thank you enough for doing this. I would love that. Thank you. Thanks again to SMRI Tejeda from Anywhere Real Estate for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the description of this episode for links to connect with SMRI. If you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, visit mmaglobal.com or you can attend any one of the 30 plus conferences in the 15 countries where MMA operates or really write me at greg at mmaglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. Tap the link in the description to leave us a review. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our project manager is Lily Mahoney. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to Lacera Smith. This is Greg Sturt. I'll see you all in two weeks.